welcome to the Uppity Women podcast. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, well, I love all of them, but I am really curious about economics. And you'll hear more of that in this conversation. But I plan to do several conversations with people. This one is sort of economics generally and the idea of capitalism and minimum wage and some other things we get into quite a bit. But I would also like to do separate conversations on the economics of education, of healthcare and politics. So you can look forward to those. I have not recorded them yet, so we'll see when they happen. But in the meantime, this is a talk with Julie Trivett. She's an economics professor at the University of Arkansas up in Fayetteville. And we met on a gorgeous day at our sagas at the depot right on Dixon Street. It was very lovely. I enjoyed our conversation. I really honestly left it with so many more questions than I started with. I was also um, sick that day, so you can hear it in my voice if you know me. And uh, I do mention at the beginning that I was not on my game. So I was not thinking super clearly. And I think that you're probably going to have a lot of questions or a lot of times a few anyway, uh, during the conversation where you want me to ask follow-up questions, because when I went back and edited this, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, ah, I wish I'd either pressed her more on that or asked this follow-up question and I just didn't do it. But we also, we talked for an hour and a half and that really, it, it truly was not enough time. So hopefully I'll get to meet with her again. And if you've got more questions, maybe we can do a follow-up interview. So just let me know. And <laughs> also, I, uh, just as a heads up, I, I ask some long convoluted questions and there are times when I won't stop talking to let her answer my questions. And I think it's just because I don't fully understand the subject matter very well. And I, I, I kind of intuit what I want to ask, but I don't really know how to ask the question clearly. So I'm sorry about that. Hopefully I will do better in the future. And there are just a couple of other things I need to clear up. I thought that the estate tax exemption was up to 14 million, but it's not. It was actually around five and a half million until uh, President Trump was elected. And then it was increased to 11.4 million. So if you are, I'm not an accountant, but basically if you're inheriting less than 11.4 million or 22.8 million for a couple, you are not paying the so-called death tax, which is an estate tax. And you can hear my opinions about that in the conversation. Um, I also mentioned that my husband worked at Levi's in Little Rock. That is not true. I always get it wrong. It's, it was Smoky Hollow, and he was there between his first and second years in college. And then let's see, we talked about Alaska and the payments that each resident gets from oil money. In 2018, it was $1,600 per person. Apparently, they the dividend was estimated to be $2,700, but it was reduced by legislative action. Their high payment was $2,072 a month. That was in 2015. So they do get this dividend and you can read more about it on Wikipedia or wherever. I just wanted to let you know what that amount was. Um, also, we talk about a couple of studies or Julie tells me about a couple of studies. Those are linked in the show notes. I'm just going to read you a little description. Uh, she provided a link to the Stanford Center on Poverty and, and Inequality. She says it's a huge site with lots of research and data available. Um, she did mention this 
in our conversation. There's a link to that in the show notes. And then there's another smaller study that she said she was actually thinking of, but misspoke when we were having the conversation. And it has more links to research and interactive data. And then also there's a website called opportunityinsights.org and opportunityatlas.org. So she says that those sites are run by highly respected experts using large amounts of accurate data and are as unbiased as possible among researchers in the field. So I love to hear that because I really, just the facts, ma'am, that's all I'm really looking for, Um, but it's hard to find that sometimes. Finally, we um, talked briefly about schools and I want you all to really think hard about this and uh, look inward. But there are studies that show she mentions this. And I've also heard this and read this in other um, podcasts and and, uh, writings I've read, but that studies are showing that having economically integrated schools are they tend to provide better economic opportunities for everyone. I want you all to listen to this two-part podcast on This American Life. It's called The Problem We All Live With. And it is painful to listen to. I'll just put it that way. But I want us all to think about what we're doing in education. And and again, think really long and hard about the choices you are making. I am also planning to do a series on education. I don't have children, so it's not something I've really, I've really dived into very deeply, but I care about it a lot. And I also think it is the key to our future and our success as a state and a country. So um, I'm interested, but I plan to break it up into several different conversations. I'm sure we'll we'll cover, like I said earlier, the economics of education. Um, I want to talk about charters versus public schools. I want to talk about Little Rock School District. I want to talk about the legal aspect of schools and sort of the history of that integration, kind of all of the above. So you can look forward to that. That'll be a long-term project, but if you have any input or any ideas for me, people you think I should talk to, please feel free to let me know. Um, But I'm really looking forward to diving into that. So anyway, thanks for letting me chat about all of this. And I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Again, if you have questions, hit me up, let me know, and we'll have a second conversation with Julie Trivet. Enjoy. Thank you so much. I'm going to just go ahead and start this off just to um, tell everyone that I'm tired (laughs) and I'm not on my game today, Uh, but it's going to be fine. And I'm really looking forward to this talk and I appreciate you meeting with me. Will you uh, tell us who you are and your position, where you're from, a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, So my name is Julie Trivet. I'm a clinical associate professor of economics at the Walton College of Business. And so I have a PhD in economics where I studied um, empirical econometrics, basically quantifying things and measuring them and understanding what we learn from that. So I teach data analysis classes where I teach students, you know, quantitative analysis and then economics courses. Are you from this area? I grew up in north central Arkansas in Mountain Home. Mm -hmm. And in my adult life, I've kind of been moving back and forth between Springfield, Missouri, northwest Arkansas and Russellville, Arkansas. Okay. Are there a lot of women in economics? No, it's um, one of those fields where we tend to see women underrepresented. Do you know why? 
Um, part of it is that uh, females, when they get their PhD, a lot of them tend to opt into policy jobs rather than academia, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's a whole host of potential explanations for the other contributing factors there. Right. And it's a science. It so. is a science. It's highly quantitative. Right. Yeah. So, so what do you, why do you think you are interested in, I don't have a science brain, but I'm interested in big picture people, what make thing, makes things work. What right. do you think led you, is it something in your personality or is there something in your background that... Well, economics is a social science, but we apply the scientific method as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I quantitatively, I can think that way and make sense of the world, uh, but it's also very much about policies and people and how we allocate resources. So for me, that was the perfect combination. And uh, I had trouble deciding exactly what I wanted to do, but economics goes all the way from like sociology and political science to finance and financial markets and everything in between. So it was a very good fit for me because it opened up a lot of options. Yeah, so I guess that's interesting. I don't think of it as a social science, even though it, of course it is. Mm-hmm. But I just have never thought of it that way because I always think about it in terms of numbers. Right. I mean, money and moving money and just how we structure things. And so, and, and again, I don't, I don't know much about it. Right. Well, but it's also about how we allocate resources and the decisions people make. Mm-hmm. Now, the prices in the economy are signals, and we respond to those signals by changing how we allocate resources. Uh, but it's, you know, very much about what people decide to do and what's important to people and why they choose to allocate their time and their money the way that they do. Yes. And just on my limited reading, we probably do things for reasons that we are not even aware of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I could spend hours with you. I have so many questions. So, um, okay. I told you before we started that I do not have any background in economics. I, this is not something I've really looked at, but I've listened to a lot of podcasts and, okay. and particularly Freakonomics is one of them. And I don't remember which episode it was, but there was one where they were, basically they were discussing some theory that had been em- employed by a president. Maybe it was Bush. I can't remember. But they were a couple of years out from it and said, even in hindsight, economists can't agree on how something worked or the impact of a, of, of a policy. And right. I don't know if you know what I'm trying to ask, but is that true? Oh, it, well, it is, right? Because as a social science, we can't create a vacuum and then look at what happens when we change one thing in this vacuum like they can in the hard sciences. So we can look at a policy and we can say, okay, all else equal, we would expect this policy to have this effect, but all else is never equal. There are a million other things simultaneously changing in the economy. And so to try to say, well, this one thing, we can isolate the effect, it's impossible because we have a million moving parts all moving at the same time. Well, great. So you'll always have a job, I guess. Um, So I had reached out to the school. There were several things I was interested in talking about. And we're going to cover a couple of things if we have time. Uh, The first thing I asked, and I'm just going to read what I wrote, uh, minimum wage. Mm -hmm. When I had a candy store, I I paid clerks $10 an hour because I thought the minimum wage was just too low. But it was a struggle for me. It seems there's a chicken and egg problem in that the more people make, the more money they spend, the better businesses do. But the businesses have to have the money to make higher payroll. 
So that was one question. And then another was um, about capitalism. And should there be billionaires was my question. Is capitalism sustainable? Seems like lots of folks are taking larger shares of the wealth to the detriment of the rest of us. How much money should we be entitled to make? What about monopolies? Is the American dream still possible, et cetera? And so what I'm kind of getting at there is um, the, you know, income distribution and I hear all the time that the economy's doing great, but I know that I'm not doing great, other people aren't doing great, and I'm a lawyer. I mean, I should be doing fine, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lot of personal choices. Uh, this podcast doesn't make any money, I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, so I can feel myself responding to my question by, by saying, oh, what, you want to punish success, right? Because that's how we're conditioned to think about that, because right. we'll, we want low taxes and you know high income. So let's start, I guess since we're talking about it, let's start with capitalism. There also, I think, is a misunderstanding about what socialism is, and and people Mm -hmm. are saying that Democrats are socialists, and I am totally biased. I am a liberal. I'm approaching this from a bias, but don't let me do that. So so please correct me, you know, whatever you need to do, because I really just want to know the truth about everything. But with the presidential election coming up, and there's all this talk about socialists, and, and I don't think people really understand what that means. Right. I think they think I think that they're thinking about communism, honestly, when they say socialism. And I think that there there's a lot of socialism that we don't think of as socialism. So I might call it corporate welfare or, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but socialism isn't just food stamps, right? right. It's also right. in the form of business tax breaks or, or infrastructure uh, investment and things right. like that. Well, okay, so if you think about Every economy and economic system has to have some way to answer five big questions. So the five big questions I have to answer are, what are we going to produce? We don't have enough resources for everybody to have everything. So what combination of, you know, tablets and cars and houses and vacation properties are we going to produce? Who gets them? Everybody can't have everything, so who gets what combination of goods and services? Um, How are we going to produce them? You know, if we want to build a road, we can do it using a lot of manpower and hand tools or very little labor and some big capital-like bulldozers. So what combination of resources are we going to use to produce all of our goods and services? And actually, when I was a college student taking the class, that was the big three they taught us. But since then, we've realized we also have to have some mechanism to accommodate change. As people's taste and preferences and new technologies change, how does our system incorporate these changes into our system? And then how do we promote growth and progress? Um, Once upon a time, we thought it was just like a random occurrence, like a lightning bolt hit the economy and we had new knowledge. But now we realize it's the result of an intentional effort. Mm -hmm. And so how will our system promote growth and progress? Um, And so you could... There's basically two types of decisions that have to be made that end up answering these five questions. One is who owns the resources? Are your resources gonna be owned by private individuals, private corporations, households, or are the resources gonna be owned by the government? Where the state kind of and the people collectively own all of the resources. And then the other question is, who decides how those resources are used? One extreme is it's all private allocation, and individuals and corporations decide how all of the resources are used. Or the other extreme is it's all done by the government. And so the people collectively through the state decide how those resources are used. And so you can think of it as a two-dimensional space, and so on one corner, 
that's extreme laissez-faire capitalism where everything is privately owned and these private decision makers allocate all the resources. Or the opposite corner of that two-dimensional space would be perhaps socialism, right? Everything is owned collectively and we the people collectively through the state allocate all of the resources. No economy functions at either extreme. They're all somewhere in the middle. Some have more private ownership of resources and more private allocation of resources, and those are the more capitalist market-oriented economies. Um, other systems have more government control, either ownership of the resources or we allow private individuals to own the resources, but we tell them what they have to do with those resources and how they're going to be used. Mm -hmm. And so, Yes, the, the Democrats or the political liberals who think that we would be better off if the state intervened more, they get labeled as socialist, uh, but still it's within kind of that quadrant where we would call it a market capitalist system where it's predominantly private ownership of the resources. But, you know, those folks tend to think we would be better off with more government control and allocation. How would you define well, are these the two systems I should even be thinking about? Obviously, we live in a capitalist country. Right. Okay, so I guess what I hear you saying is that even from the left, it's still a capitalist system that they're talking about, just with a different distribution of... Yeah, typically when, you, when we think about allowing private um, decision-making or allocation of the resources, that's taking place in a market. And... Most of the policies, are they're just talking about putting more constraints on the market. So we're still going to let the market work, but we're going to put these restrictions on the market. Okay. Where, like, a, you know, some people might advocate a socialist system, which would be we don't do markets. The government's going to just mandate everything. Okay, so that is socialist. Um, and so, so they control the resources, and they also control how it's distributed and who gets to use the resources. Yeah. Everything. Okay. Do you believe that there is an income gap or a wealth gap the way it's talked about in politics? Yeah. So the way we measure, so there's two things, right? There's income, which is money coming in. It's like a flow measure, typically mm -hmm. on an annual basis. And then there's wealth, which is the accumulation over time. It's like the current value of all your assets minus your outstanding liabilities. And as we measure the income distribution or the wealth distribution, we are seeing more divergence or a, a growing disparity between the people at the bottom of the distribution and the people at the top. And that is because of the decisions we've made. Well, why is that? Well, yeah, so there's, this is one of those things where you know, you've got a million things moving at the same time and it's really hard to attribute cause and effect to any single or even to parse out the effect of a single thing. Um, so one of the things we're seeing is we're seeing higher returns to higher education, particularly in some fields, right? And so, I mean, ultimately, though, if we think about income, when people are employees or employed in the labor market, their income is largely driven by their productivity and the value of what they create for the firm. And so for people with certain skills, we're seeing higher productivity gains in certain sectors than others. And those tended to be sectors that were already higher earning. Mm -hmm. And so that drives part of the income distribution. Another thing is that the income is typically household income. And historically, people got married while they were very young. And so females went into the workforce kind of in mass. 
that causes the income distribution to shift. Also, as folks delay marriage, that means we have more households and if the male and female were both going to be employed and they get married you have a single household with higher income Mm -hmm. now we have two households with lower income if they choose not to get married so it's a combination of what's going on in labor markets what's going in with our social demographic decisions that we choose to make Um, you know and when you see demographics like the baby boom as they get older and they're in the their late pre-retirement or early retirement years that's when their household wealth is maximized mm-hmm. right as and then they presumably spend it down in retirement mm-hmm. and so we saw this huge demographic um, fluctuation and they're kind of at their peak wealth years right now so it's a combination of lots of things right. but there's no doubt that the tax code has affected it, right? And some of the recent tax changes may be more favorable to people who already had higher wealth to start with. Right, so the Trump tax cuts, it, it based on my reading, and again, I, it, I don't know which are the unbiased sources, so I try to look for mm-hmm. not one side or the other, but like a, a good examination, but my understanding is that it, it did benefit the large corporations and the, the super wealthy who are not who are sitting on their wealth and they're not necessarily reinvesting it in more production or, or whatever it would be. I don't, I don't even know what I want them to be doing. Okay, well, so if you said they're sitting on their wealth, I mean, like if they had a pile of gold just sitting right. there or they were putting cash in coffee cans and burying it in mm-hmm. the backyard, then it would be sitting there being perhaps unproductive. But that's not what most folks do with their money, right? They invest it. And so when they, you know, they buy stock in a company, now if it's a new company, IPO, they're putting money into the company so that the private ownership can take money out or so that the company can expand. Right. So in that so case, like a they're investing. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, or if they're... Uh, Putting it, even if they're putting it into a private family trust, that trust is taking the money and investing it. Maybe they're buying bonds, maybe they're buying stocks, but when they buy a bond, they're effectively loaning that money to a corporation who needs it for typically a large capital project. So if it's going back into our capital markets, it's being invested. Right. So I guess what that is making me think then is my knee-jerk reaction to that is, yeah, but corporations exist to make profits for their shareholders, right? Right. And it feels like it's at the expense of workers or the local tax base, wherever they operate. Um, So I hear you saying that the money might be being invested in these companies, Mm -hmm. but who's then benefiting from that? So how am I benefiting from the stock market or from... Okay, so think about a company like Amazon, Mm -hmm. right? It's Mm -hmm. been created during our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. No, it's a huge billion dollar company. Um, The fact that they exist makes me better off. Okay, so tell me about that. Because I can, if I wanna buy a new book, I can download it and it shows up on my phone or my iPad instantly. And I prefer that Mm -hmm. in some cases to going to a store. If I know exactly what I want and I don't wanna like meander and look through the aisles of the bookstore to see what I discover, that's more efficient, right? And like, there are some products that I used to buy locally and the local shops quit carrying them. Mm-hmm. So I go on Amazon and see if I can buy it there and then set it up to come to my house once a month. I get the things that I need that I can't find. Right. 
So I'm better off. So the fact that Amazon was able to raise their capital and expand makes me better off. Right. And I may be able to get it at a lower price, which means my income allows me to have a higher standard of living than I could have otherwise. But then if, but if Amazon isn't paying and, and again, I don't understand this, but you know, of course right. on Facebook, all these stories get passed around. If Amazon is paying no federal taxes, how does that benefit the greater good? Is that, is that the wrong way to think about it? Well, okay. So if our tax code is set up to tax corporations, you know, you would hope that all of them that are profitable end up paying. Now, frequently they will put special provisions in to encourage companies to do things that help make the economy better off. Like by, um, I know in the past they've done special special provisions where you can invest and rather than write it off over five years to depreciate it, you can cost it all at once, Mm -hmm. which makes their profit look smaller and reduces their income tax in that year. So if they're taking advantage of these types of things to try to invest and have more capital, which makes them more productive in the future, it may be kind of a long-term versus a Mm short-term trade-off. Now, if, you know, and I don't know the details, I'm not a tax expert by any means, you know, but if we have, you know, given into special interest and written our tax code so that large corporations pay no tax, that might be an inefficiency that we want to revisit in our tax code. But even if corporations pay no tax, if they employ, you know, 100,000 workers and these 100,000 workers have money to spend in their local economies and they pay into social security and pay income taxes, we collectively have still benefited in that way. Right. So I I have looked for and haven't found yet, um, let's say HP and Conway. I don't know if this is a true story, so let me me just say that. But so Conway offers all these incentives um, to HP to build their factory there, and HP agrees to employ a certain number of people, stay for a certain number of years. Right. And then HP, I'm going to say breaches that agreement. From what I've seen, and this is just locally in in central Arkansas, the cities don't have recourse. Like, what do they do? Do they sue HP? Like, so I guess what my real question is, I want to know, I'm curious about the true costs and benefits of economic development. Right. Right. Trying to get Toyota to come to Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Well, how much do we have to give up? Yes, I understand it might create 200 jobs, but I've never really seen it balance out or, or an examination of whether it balances out. It might totally. Right. But it, is that, um, I, I don't know what my question is. I'm going to say this a lot during this interview. Okay. Because I just, I, I don't know how to ask the question because I just don't know enough about it. But okay. is that something we should be concerned about or think about or encourage? I mean, because we still have to build the roads and we still have to educate the people who are going to work there. We still have to do all the things. And that's one of my frustrations is that you know, I have the sense that we all think government sucks and it's, you know, it's just, you know, putting its foot on our necks and we can't do anything and we can't innovate. But government is actually quite innovative. And and um, I think there are times that we allow the private sector to take over our innovations. I say our, the government's innovations and go make all the money and the government doesn't necessarily benefit from it. But but what I what I what people don't think about is the is all the, the education, the Internet, the the roads, the um, airwaves. I mean, just like right. all of the stuff that the, the government gives to everyone to the benefit of these companies. And I feel like when if there's 
if they're getting, if the companies are getting all the benefits, but they're paying a low wage, or they're not, I don't know, somehow reinvesting in the community. I don't know what I, I want them to do, but right. I want them to pay people well. Um, so is it worth it then? That's, okay. not, that's not the right question. Is it worth it? But, but how do I need to think about that whole thing? Where it feels unfair, but it's probably good for us? Right. Well, so one of the realities that we're seeing is kind of we're still seeing a migration of population from rural to urban areas. Mm -hmm. So smaller towns um, may need to do something to keep their residents from moving. And for a town where you're seeing people leave, that that has a lot of kind of negative consequences for the government and the community as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Um, as people leave town, houses may depreciate when there's less demand. You still have just as many miles of road to pave, but you may have less revenue. Your school buildings are just as big, but you have less revenue to maintain and take care of those buildings. So clearly uh, communities that are at least stable or have a moderate growth rate and population tend to be much more sustainable from the government financial perspective. So it's possible that a lot of, you know, we a good manufacturing facility in your area that agrees to stay and to provide jobs, that's a great thing. And mm -hmm. it's an asset to a community because then your people will stay and they will pay taxes and they will shop locally, which generates sales tax revenue. Mm -hmm. And that means your schools may have revenue if they need to expand. And so um, communities want good employers who are going to stay long term. But because lots of communities want the smaller number of employers who may be building and establishing in a region, the communities begin to compete to get them. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, the businesses typically want to maximize profits. And so if they can have a location where they have lower operating costs because they don't have to pay as much in property taxes or whatever the, you know, the city is gonna help pay for their facility or the infrastructure at their facility, that makes that region more attractive to the employers. Mm -hmm. Now, if the government has like perfect foresight, they should be able to predict, okay, here's gonna be the economic impact of 200 people making this wage and spending it locally. Here's the economic impact of these tax breaks that we're gonna get. And then they'll weigh the cost and the benefits and make you know a, an offer to attract the firm. They don't always have perfect foresight, right? Mm -hmm. Things change from the economic perspective or people may make decisions to commute and to not live in the community. Or maybe the firm allows employees to telecommute and so they don't actually move to the city near the employer. So those kinds of things can happen as well. Another thing that we see, especially in, you know, in this part of the country, is that a lot of times cities will develop an area with the intent that this will attract businesses to, you know, this new business commercial district that we've created. And a lot of times a church will move in. Well, as nonprofits, church don't pay mm -hmm. taxes. And so a city will build an area with the expectation that they're going to recover the revenue in taxes. And then they don't if nonprofits move in. Right. So that's kind of another thing that cities may work really hard to compete um, for for-profit tax-paying entities to make sure that they take up the spaces that the city has already paid money to right. develop. 
And instead they get the riffraff. They get the churches and nonprofits. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, there's a reason we don't make them pay taxes because they do other things that are good for the community. But, you know, from a, a government looking at a financial perspective, Mm-hmm. You have to have a nice balance right. to make sure that you've got revenue coming in. Right. And, I mean, kind of you're talking about, you know, the government innovating. I would argue governments have a lot less incentive and perhaps don't innovate as well as private entities. Because what's the objective of the government? Well, it depends on who you ask or exactly. who's in charge. Yeah. Exactly. But so even a well-meaning government leader may not have a lot of incentives to to take risk on new technologies or to develop new things because what's the incentive? Right. But at the same time, you know, the NIH might be developing new medications and doing all the research and spending all the money to do that, but then Pfizer, I don't know who, someone gets that patent and gets to make all the money and we can't even negotiate those prices with them. I think I just made a gross generalization, but I mean, yes. or or the reason that Elon Musk is going to space, I believe is because of technology developed by NASA, right? So so there are there are innovations. I mean, and you know, the military is a great innovator and, and they're they're the, the source of quite mm-hmm. a bit of technology, drones, um, internet, you know, email. So, right. So, but yeah, so these are like, I'm thinking like NASA, government agencies specifically created for that purpose. Right. But yeah, like government in general, like the, the offices and the bureaucracies that we interact with on a daily basis, right. those are the ones that are, I was thinking of as far as inefficient, not as innovative. Um, so the NIH, they give grants to private entities for research. Typically, they tend to fund things that are not going to be patentable, but lead to general discoveries. And then, of course, private firms can take those general discoveries and build on them to get a patentable product. Um, yeah, and you went with Pfizer going into healthcare. Healthcare is a whole messed up market on many levels. Yeah. That- that we don't have time to get into no, no, no. today. And I really want to understand it, um, but we'll, yeah, we'll save that for another time and probably beer or something, wine, I don't know. So back to capitalism and should there be billionaires? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll just go back to my original question, owning a store, right? Mm-hmm. So I honestly don't know how people could live on a minimum wage. So where is it really a chicken and egg problem where... Yes, employers should be able to pay more, but they've got to have people to buy their. And what? And when I think of small business, I think of the mom and pop stores, right? The the deep, you know, Arsagas and you know, not Coke and Pepsi. Right, right. Uh, so small business is is actually quite large in, mm-hmm. in government and tax terms. Um, but I'm talking about just the small uh, businesses. And um, and let's forget about Amazon. I shop on Amazon too. Right. I do try to shop local, but it is so darn convenient um, and often cheaper. Uh, so. I I don't I don't even know how to talk about it because I'm I'm I struggle between wanting businesses to be successful but also wanting their employees to be. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know employees have value, some value, but it's it's the employer who decides what that value is. Not really. Okay, so tell me about that. I mean, the employer decides what wage they're going to pay. Right. And that wage is determined by a combination of things. Um, If the employer is like the only major employer in a region, they may have some monopsony power as the only buyer, and they may be able to pay a lower wage than they could otherwise. But also, I mean, partially that's determined by the value of the product they're producing and the demand for that product. 
So if the labor is being used to create a product that has very low value, the the employer cannot pay them a high wage Mm -hmm. because they'll be paying the employee more than the revenue they're collecting when they sell what they've produced. And so it's a combination of of how productive they are and the value of the product that they're producing. Um, And so when we set a minimum wage, there are some jobs which may disappear Mm -hmm. if the value of what that labor is providing is less than that wage rate. Yeah, I could not have paid 15 an hour at my candy store. Exactly. Yeah, because candy is a lot cheaper on Amazon, but I had a much better selection. I have no doubt. (laughs) And much better service too, I'm sure. Yes. Right, so I worry about that, but I'm not worried about McDonald's, right? I mean, I don't know what their profits are. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so let's think about McDonald's, right? So it is a large corporation, but a lot of the actual McDonald's stores you go into, they're franchises. So they're owned by someone locally. So one of the things I've noticed, and I don't go to McDonald's very often, but I did take um, some nieces there uh, a couple of years ago, and they had gone from me speaking my order to a live person to me typing my order in on a kiosk. That they're substituting technology for labor Mm -hmm. because labor has gotten more expensive while technology has gotten less expensive. So if we increase the wage rate, we're going to see more of that taking place. Right. Similar to like Kroger, the check self-checkout. The self-checkout, checkout. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right? Banks were kind of the first to do it, to go to ATMs mm-hmm. instead of tellers. And now we're seeing it become much more widespread. Well, and that is just going to become more prevalent regardless of, of wages too, right? With with um, As technology becomes yes. more sophisticated and gets cheaper as we get better at producing right. it. Yeah. Some of those low-skilled jobs mm-hmm. will disappear as right. a result. So then how do we how do we prepare for the future? I haven't I haven't heard anyone with with an idea. <laughs> like what what do we do about that? I mean, are we So another argument for the um, minimum wage against the minimum wage mm-hmm. is fast food jobs are for teenagers. Right? Well, and that's like in our department um, we have administrative assistants who come and are great and then they leave relatively quickly because they get an offer for a higher paying right. job somewhere else. Right. And so, and, and that position pays well above minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So it's true that people who, you know, have skills and are willing to learn, they don't stay in minimum wage jobs very long mm-hmm. because they're, they're able to move up and be, prove themselves and become more productive to employers and move into higher paying positions. Um, at the same time, there are some segments of the economy where they struggle to find people to fill their jobs mm-hmm. that pay well above minimum wage. The trade jobs? Some of the trades, uh, things like truck drivers. Mm-hmm. So that's a situation you know, where we may just need better mechanisms to match up the people who need specific training for these jobs with the jobs that are available in the economy. So is that a failure in education? I mean, I'm I'm hearing more talk about how we're not teaching trades because we've been focused so much on college um, that we don't have those skilled workers. Right. The students don't perceive that there is an option because we focus so much on college. Right. Um, Maybe. I mean, that could be part of it. But there are other things, right? If there are no jobs where you live locally, it may require relocation. Yeah. Um, Some folks may not be as well equipped to manage that kind of transition or even to get the information they need to be able to to move, Mm -hmm. to to accept the jobs that are available. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of things within the labor market, you know, that that provide different hurdles that would require different solutions to address them. 
<sighs> but long term, right? If we're gonna have computers and like automation that creates things that need very little human intervention, that provides huge opportunities. In what way? Well, um, if we need less manpower to create things, then that frees up time for manpower to do other things, right? So maybe we all work less and have the same standard of living, Mm -hmm. or we have manpower available to tackle things that are difficult and really require kind of a one-on-one intervention. Right. Tell, tell me, well, give me things, an example. Well, I'm thinking things like um, like nursing or some types of social oh, work. Right? right. Oh, yeah. Machines and computers cannot, yes. cannot take yes. over that. Right. Right. Oh, that's funny. So I was talking to someone about um, someone who's moving, and but she's going to keep in touch with her therapist mm-hmm. by phone. Right. And we were talking about it, and there's just something you can't get on the phone or even on Skype or, or FaceTime because there's so much body language and you know you can tell your therapist on the phone you're doing fine but if they see you they can see that you're depressed right you know and so yeah I think there is a lot of that um uh, or there will be continue to be those opportunities Mm -hmm. plumbing I mean right they're using cameras to look in your pipes but you still need you still have to have someone who knows which pipe to put the camera in and how to deal with what you see yes that's right so um Okay, this is all just leading to so many more questions. I feel I'm a fixer, and so, like, I want solutions to things. You want a policy prescription. Yeah, and and I also, people are suffering, and it's hard hard to hear. It's hard to reconcile an Amazon not paying any in taxes, if if that's the, the truth, and someone like me who can't afford to pay for health care, right? And, I mean, I just... And me, I'm in a good position. I have I have much privilege. I'm never going to be homeless, you know, or a, I don't know, a, a young person or a mother, a single mother who doesn't have the resources. So is there a way without, I guess, true socialism, um, is there a way for everyone to have opportunities to at least do reasonably well? And I don't know what that reasonably well is, because that also means something different. Right. You know, I've, I've heard more talk lately about the minimum income, or what is it, the basic income for everyone? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, yeah, minimum basic income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's an intriguing idea, and yeah. I have to tell you, I haven't followed yeah. them yeah. to see how well they're doing, but that's a system where basically everyone receives a payment from right. the government, which is like supposedly enough to provide for your very basic needs. Right. And then if you want to work to earn above that, you do so. Right. Um, it's an intriguing idea, but of course the government doesn't create money, it collects it in taxes. Right. So you have to think about where you're collecting it and you have to make it low enough that people still have a big incentive mm-hmm. to work and create and make things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. But if you think about if we're going to have a future where we have a lot of machines or technologies that can produce and provide value that doesn't require much human intervention, Mm -hmm. if we tax the work of machines, I've seen some people say that could be a way to help support a minimum income for everyone. But like the whole idea of an opportunity for everyone, that is kind of our dream or our goals with our Mm -hmm. educational system. Mm -hmm. Everyone attends school from the time they're six until at least 16. Some states make it 18. 
our goal is to teach you, you know, reading, writing, math, science, enough history and civics that you can be a good, productive citizen with a lot of options on where you go and what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, in some places, our schools do better jobs of that than in other places, mm-hmm. you know, but then there's still all of these personal things. For some people, staying close to family and staying connected to their roots is more important than income or wealth than if there are no economic opportunities in their small community, they're going to feel trapped mm-hmm. and feel like they don't have opportunities. Right. Um, where for other folks, they grow up a, in a household where kind of the culture is you go wherever the opportunities are and you're willing to take a risk and explore new options. And so those folks going through the same educational system might perceive a very different set of opportunities in the world. Mm -hmm. And that, I haven't seen or heard anybody have a good way to address it. Mm -hmm. And should we? I mean, should we tell people that the, the framework with which you see the world and the choices you make are wrong? Yeah. Yeah, that's why. And I always say, like, I don't think I should get everything I want. I don't even really know what I want in this context because right. I don't know how it works. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's so, um, all of this just leads to so many more questions for me. And so how do you look at the world? You know, like, I'm assuming you pay attention to politics and, and the local schools. And, you know, how do you think about things without making yourself crazy? If it would, I don't know. Um, no. Well, you, you kind of have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. You can't, or at least I personally don't feel like I could be an expert on everything and I sure. don't want to take all the time and energy that would even require. And honestly, I'm paying less attention to politics these days because it's incredibly frustrating. And, you know, I try to focus on the little areas where I do have some control and some mm-hmm. influence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at all the different economic systems, the U.S. system is not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually one of the stronger systems. And we're really kind of talking about the details. Exactly how much fine-tuning of the, of the economy should we have with government? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not talking about, like, a completely different economic system. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're saying just tweak what we've got. Yes. Is that what? You, yeah. Yes. Let, so let me ask you, because um, I'll forget. In in '08, the crash, whatever Financial we're crisis, calling it, yeah, right? A lot of people say it was because of people were buying houses they couldn't afford. What responsibility do the lenders have for that? Oh no, there's no doubt that the lenders were. There's enough blame to go around to everybody on right. this one, really. Right. So, okay, if you think about, you know, 100 years ago, the model was a local bank would lend money for your mortgage, mm-hmm. and they held that mortgage for 30 years as you slowly paid it off. So they were interested in your ability to repay the mortgage for the next 30 years. Because while they could, you know, foreclose, sell the home, they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Those transaction costs were high. Um, but over time, right, it, we developed a system where the local bank would sell that mortgage to someone else to free up money that they can make more loans. Mm-hmm. Well, as banks are doing that, you're no longer as concerned about the borrower's ability to repay the loan for the next 30 years. You're concerned about the borrower's ability to make the mortgage payments for the next two years until you bundle it together and mm-hmm. sell it to someone else. And this is what mortgage brokers were beginning to do. Okay, so that was one contributing factor. 
Also, on Wall Street, they took a way to take these mortgage loans and bundle them together and sell them as securities, right? So when you buy a piece of this bundle of mortgages, you're basically buying income. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we kind of thought that these geniuses on Wall Street had come up with the perfect investment because it had low risk and it had a high return, which is perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, when you make an investment, there's a trade-off between risk and return. So we thought the geniuses on Wall Street had, you know, created this perfect investment. Well, if you think you're buying something with low risk or investing in something with low risk and a high return, there's going to be lots of people who want to pump a lot of money into that investment, mm-hmm. which means these these investment banks have to keep buying more and more mortgages from the local lenders or mortgage brokers to be able to bundle them and sell them. And so lenders were incredibly willing to lend money for a house. Mm-hmm. Now, historically, under those old lending conditions, American homeowners typically did not default, had a very low default rate. And in the event that they did default, um, the house had appreciated in value. And so they could foreclose and then sell it and not really lose any money. Well, as all of these changes are taking place in the market, as lenders are more and more willing to lend money for homes, people are more willing to buy, which causes the price of homes to go up. And when the economy's doing well, you've got a steady income, you feel pretty confident in your job possibilities, um, you're willing to take on a little bit more debt for a house. Mm-hmm. So home prices are going up. Well, if you want to buy a home, because you know that financially that's a good move historically, but home prices are going up 12, 15% per year, you're desperate to get in. And so you might be able to to take a loan or might be willing to take a loan for 100% of the home's value mm-hmm. without saving up your 20% down. Mm-hmm. Because you need to get in as these prices are going up because that's gonna help you build wealth. So we had increased demand um, from consumers on willingness to borrow and buy homes, increased supply on the, the, the banks who are gonna feed these mortgages that get bundled together and securitized. Mm-hmm. So it was like the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. So yes, some people did perhaps borrow more than they should have to buy homes, but we also had mortgage lenders and brokers who were taking paperwork without confirming that the person actually had the income that they said. And they were making loans that anyone with, you know, any business sense looked at it would know it was a bad idea, but they didn't care because they were going to turn around and sell it to the investment bank. Mm -hmm. And the investment bank is going to bundle so many of them together and it be geographically uh, diversified that they're really not worried about mass default Mm -hmm. on these. And then, of course, it was unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And when the bubble burst, we saw lots of things happening that we had never seen before as the market corrected. And so, so, I mean, the ratings agencies who are rating these securitized mortgage bundles, the investment banks, the lenders and the mortgage brokers and the homeowners, you know, everybody played their role, mm-hmm. but it took kind of all of them together to cause the mess. Right. And do you think that the bailouts were appropriate? Should should the, the banks, I mean, the people suffered by taking hits to their credit or whatever, um, mm-hmm. which probably may not have been great to begin with, but should... Should, do you think it was handled appropriately? And, I and do. should it be regulated well, to prevent that in the future? Um, yes and yes, right? So th- we got to a point at, at the worst of the crisis where U.S. Treasuries were selling for a premium. That means people were paying for the privilege of lending money to the U.S. government. 
because when you see investment banks failing, the government, U.S. government was the only entity they thought would still be standing or they were confident would still be standing in a week or a month's time. So when your markets have lost all of that confidence and you're a market-based economy, the government should appropriately step in and do something to reassure people that the whole system is not collapsing and that we're going to get through it together. Mm. Now, once we could, in hindsight, see what had happened and caused it to burst, do we want to prevent it? Yes. And I think we did pass legislation that's designed to prevent that exact same type of market mm-hmm. scenario going forward. Will we see the markets do things that we don't want it to do in the future? Of course, right? People are creative. And when there's an incentive or a way to generate a profit, people are gonna find it and they're gonna take advantage of it. And that's why we put parameters on our market. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't engage in false advertising. We have new financial legislation Mm-hmm. Dodd-Frank or Frank Dodd, I forget what. I think it's Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's designed to prevent mm-hmm. some of the, the things we saw going on in the market that we don't want to repeat. Right. Okay. So for someone, let's say someone like me who wants to help people, wants, wants businesses to be successful, because mm-hmm. I understand that that makes our community successful, like I'm, it helps the tax base and all of that. So when I'm listening to the candidates or, I don't know, going through my daily life or trying to figure out where I want to volunteer my time Mm -hmm. or what organizations I want to support, how do you recommend I think about these things? It feels so big. I I get so overwhelmed by this conversation because I don't even know what to do with what you've told me. And I, I don't know if I even have the ability to have an impact. Okay. Are you going to single handedly fix our system? No. But I would if someone would let me. No. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I kind of think there's a huge chunk of the population where if we just put one person in charge, things might be better if there would be a consistent set of, you know, rules applied. Mm -hmm. But we'd never agree on who it would be. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Could you if we would let you? Maybe. But we're probably not going to let you. So what you can do, though, is affect individual lives on a smaller scale. So you find a local organization that you think is addressing real problems and then work with them and support them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if you're worried about food insecurity, you find a food pantry Mm -hmm. or an organization that tackles food problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I would say education. Find a good educational organization. Maybe it's one that helps provide um, options for students to attend schools other than their residentially assigned public school. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's to help um, provide volunteer programs within the public school for, you know, after school or extracurricular things Mm -hmm. that are available. Pay attention to what's going on in your local district. Uh, Communicate with the school administrators and the school board to let them know here are some potential issues I see or potential solutions to problems that you haven't thought of yet. And what do we look for in candidates? (laughs) Yeah. And and I don't mean this in a political sense, but just like I've always been engaged politically and um, I always, I feel like I make good choices among the choices I have, but... Yeah, but we're, we frequently feel like we're choosing from the least among the evils. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I know that our politicians are only thinking as far as their next election. And that is just such a big problem. But 
I mean, is that just the way it is? Is that just the way it's going to be? You know, so I guess what I'm trying to think of is, is there a way that we can also influence business, you know, to maybe be a little bit more altruistic? You know, like there are new benefit corporations that we're allowed to create. And I did a CLE on it one year and no one is using them. So they're, right. they're basically untested. And but I like the idea of it. And I like that Patagonia is trying to protect the environment, you know. Right. So, well, and I mean, as consumers, we can't mm-hmm. vote with our dollars, right? right? Right. We can choose to buy Tom's because we know that they're going to donate shoes to someone who might not have them otherwise. Mm-hmm. And we can choose to support or not support companies who have taken a stand on policies or political issues that are consistent with what we want to see or against what we want to mm-hmm. see. And we can be vocal about, I'm intent intentionally shopping here because of this, or I'm intentionally not shopping here Mm -hmm. because of this. So that's one way that, that we can do it. I mean, I look for candidates where I feel like I trust the decision-making criteria they're going to use when they're faced with a difficult decision. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a lot easier to do that at the local level or even the state level than at the national level. Mm And I mean, the reality is, in our current political system, money matters. And, yeah. and the interest groups uh, that have donated money to the political party that the candidate is aligned with will influence the decision they make mm-hmm. in lots of cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I train women to run for office, and money... I wish we could just take it out completely, but I know mm-hmm. you've got to raise money to get your voice and your message out there and to introduce mm-hmm. yourself to voters. And, you know, it feels very um, unfair. I'm consumed by justice. Uh, but it feels unfair that that the special interests have the money. They can, I don't want to say buy politicians, but right. influence politicians. And I don't have that kind of money. And so I understand that it takes a, a movement, right? Mm-hmm. Because one corporation only has one vote or they don't, they don't get to vote, but you know what I mean, right? Well, but see, that's the thing, right? So it's one person, one vote. Right, right. In my economics class, I show students why if we have a democratic system, one person, one vote, we can end up with some very inefficient outcomes. If it's going to impose a huge cost on a small number of people, but a small benefit to the majority, that group of voters will vote in a program that's really effectively bad for us all collectively. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. We cannot vote in programs that would be net gain based on how the cost and the benefits are distributed. Mm-hmm. But if you give people a mechanism to, to signal how strongly they feel about it, right? Um, like, Can you think of examples for this? Well, for so we have a, I believe it's a tariff on sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Which means goods made with sugar cost more in the U.S. than elsewhere. That's why when you drink a Coca-Cola in the U.S., it's typically sweetened with corn syrup. Mm-hmm. If you drink it in other parts of the world, it's made with sugar. Oh, okay, yeah. So for consumers, we may have inferior products or they may cost more, which imposes a very small cost on all of us. But who benefits from this? Well, people who grow sugar in the U.S., So we may have a small amount of sugar produced from cane. We have some produced with beets. Mm -hmm. So that's not a huge part of agriculture in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But also the substitutes for sugar benefit corn. Mm -hmm. And they grow corn in a huge chunk of the U.S. And so all of the farmers in those states are in favor of keeping this tariff in place. So huge benefits to a smaller group. 
a higher cost imposed collectively, but because it's spread out over such a large number of people, we don't get all fired Mm -hmm. up and involved in trying to eliminate sugar tariffs. Right. And we don't know that it's not sugar, like cane sugar in our sodas. Yeah. Even though we all love Mexican Coke, because it's real. We don't pay attention, right, to what's going on. We don't observe the prices we would pay if that tariff were not in place. Right. We don't observe the counterfactual if the policy were changed. We are so busy with everything else, we don't care to research it and get involved because the cost on us is relatively minimal. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where the huge benefits accruing to a small group, if they start talking about changing it, they have a lot at stake and they're going to be very vocal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think I'm switching gears, but, but I feel like it might be related a little bit. My husband, I don't know, and some are between college semesters or something, um, he worked for the Levi factory in Little Rock. Okay. And they were all, it it wasn't a union, but they were all asking for raises and benefits. Right. And the company said, okay, here's here's what we'll do. We'll either give you a some percentage raise or we'll give you $100 right now. And he said they all wanted $100 right now, not realizing that they would get more money over time if they got that raise. Right. What is it in our brains that makes us want that immediate gratification and not think about long term? Yeah, that's one of the things behavioral economists are trying to figure out. And that's, I'm not an expert or up to date on the literature for what they're doing, but there is a definite bias toward the present. So like today, if you ask someone about the trade-off between now versus a week from now, Your answer is going to be different than if you had asked them about the same trade-off between today and a week from now, three months ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because looking into the future, three months versus three months and one week, my answer doesn't vary. But when it's today versus next week, my answer varies a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we do know that there is a, a, a bias toward the present. In some individuals, it's much stronger than in others. Mm -hmm. And so this causes them, you know, to not save, not invest, and not plan for the future, which which leads to different ability to deal with unexpected events in life and how much wealth you accumulate over a period of time. Right. Yeah, I get that. We have needs and wants right Mm -hmm. now. Right. Not two years from now when we might be making more money in our paychecks. Well, and and I see it with college students, right? Oh, doing the small assignments and turning in the homework for, you know, when the semester is over in 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a real long term investment, but they still struggle to to get the assignment turned in and pace themselves to do well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my husband and I, we I have accumulated a lot of debt. So I lost my job. My job is eliminated in 2015. So I'm going on four years now. And I've uh, tried two businesses. One I still have. Um, so I have a lot of business debt, and mm-hmm. I am not bringing in money. So the burden, and also my husband, he's he's kind of shifted gears in his law practice. So he's basically started from scratch. So we're like in a very difficult place financially right now. So we've talked about bankruptcy because there is this appeal to just eliminating a lot of debt right mm-hmm. now that we have been paying on for a long time. Right. But then at the same time, I want to pay my debt, you know, and, right. and I know it's going to take me longer and I'm probably going to have to go get a job, right, to, mm-hmm. to, so that I can do this so we can start saving. And we're, you know, I'm 48, he's 51. Um, and so uh, we need to be prepared to retire, you know, and mm-hmm. all those things. So, so it's definitely something I think about, well, what would feel better right now? It would feel better to not have all those bills that we right. owe, you know, but long term, I mean, 
it affects credit, our ability to, to get more credit, and what if what if my law to go kind of takes off, but I need an investment, can I get it? So it's like, it's really hard to just sit down and kind of think about what is the best thing to do. And mm-hmm. I predict that we'll, I'll get a job and we'll just pay it off over time and, you know, do it right. that way. Because that's, I don't want to say that's the way we are because I don't want to imply that it's bad to, to file for bankruptcy. I mean, it's there for a reason. Um, so, yeah, I understand it. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything more to say, but it's... It is because we have immediate needs and wants. And mm-hmm. when someone, you know, I joke about winning the lottery and say, listen, I would take 5,000 right now. <laughs> right. Know? Forget about the 10 million I might win someday, which I don't play the lottery, but mm-hmm. you know, and so anyway. Um, so one of the things you had asked about was should we allow billionaires? Oh yes, yes, I wanted to get back to okay. that. Okay, the only way to not allow billionaires is to just confiscate everything above that, mm-hmm. which, provides incentive issues, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm getting close to that threshold, well, the government's just going to come take a good chunk of it anyway. Maybe I won't invest and do things to create additional wealth. I'll just blow it on, you know. But is that a real risk? Dinners. I mean, that's one of the things. Let's say a billion dollars. I mean, if I can only make $999 million, so okay. I don't have incentive. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, so that's one thing. But actually, we do have, within our tax code, we make it more difficult to accumulate wealth that is passed down to heirs through the inheritance tax right. or the estate tax. Right. Right? So any uh, anything over like it's like 11.2 million, I think, the government takes 40%. I think it's up to 14 now. Oh, did it go up this year? It went okay. up, yeah. Um, okay. But that's also, that's unearned wealth. I mean, so we talk. See, I have a problem right. with that 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 characterization as well. Not that I'm disagreeing with what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I don't feel sorry for people who can't and in, you know inherit 14 million dollars without yeah, paying no. taxes on it. So that's unearned wealth. No, I I, oh, yeah. I think we as Americans collectively agree that we want to prevent this amount accumulation of huge amounts of wealth right. in families, you know, and that's why we have the estate tax. Mm-hmm. Yes, for the very wealthy. Right. Yeah. But most people, and that's another. And I, I trust me. I've a lot of people come to me and say, I don't want to. I just want to avoid probate. Right. I don't want. I don't want to have to pay the death tax, mm-hmm. or my heirs to pay the death tax. And I'll say, Well, do you make fourteen million dollars, or do you have fourteen million dollars in assets, or whatever the number right. is now? And they say, Oh no. no. <laughs> yeah. You don't I, have I don't, to. Worry. I don't have a hundred thousand. You know. And so, so people, there's this. We've been well conditioned, right, right, to think that we're punishing success, but we also live in a society, and, and this I, I hate this argument, not the one you're making, but the one I'm about to talk about, that um, that we're punishing success, and and uh, I earn that, I should be able to do with it what I want. Okay, well, your kids didn't earn that, right? And so while I want them to be able to inherit right. your hard work and, and carry on the legacy or whatever it is, you know, we say that we want everyone to work and, and have value and contribute. Well, they're not doing that. They didn't earn that. They might right. use that money to then go make more. But just this idea that we want to give, uh, you know, rich people. And I sound like I resent rich people. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But they don't get rich on their own. They don't get rich in a vacuum. Right. So they, right. Owe, they right. owe the government. They owe society. They owe they owe something. How much it is, I have no idea. So this idea that, and I know you're not arguing this, but this idea that um, we should be able to do whatever we want with our money Mm -hmm. and not have to pay for anything, just, I just don't agree with it. Right. They all use our parks. They all drive on our roads. They often use public education. And and so, you know, but, but again, I don't know what the cutoff should be. Should it be 2 million? I don't know. Well, so, okay. 
So we pay income taxes every year on the income yes. being generated. Yes. If their wealth is invested to generate an income, it's creating an additional tax liability. Right. And our tax system is designed so that the higher your income, the greater the percentage of your income you pay in taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to tax wealth, I mean, that's a little bit harder because, well, just do we value the portfolio at December 31st every year? Mm-hmm. You know, the way we currently do it is we wait until death that's valued on the date of death, and then we collect 40% above that $14 million exemption amount in the mm-hmm. form of estate taxes. Mm-hmm. So we do have systems in place to kind of to, to mitigate how far apart the upper and the lower ends of the income distribution would be. So we don't like have a numeric limit, but we have a tax system in place that's designed to to make it smaller than what it would be if we did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I have a follow up question. Um, yeah. I mean, you could argue that we allow it to get bigger than the ideal, and we should have a more progressive tax scheme and a more a higher estate tax rate and a lower exemption amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, you can make those arguments, and right. And I can't tell you exactly what the ideal tax. I think policy would be, I, and I think that's where I'm stuck right now. Is mm-hmm. is okay? Well, what what should it be? Because I, again, I don't want to be unfair to the, the mm-hmm. people who have built the wealth or inherited it or whatever. But at the same time, I, I think we should all have to pay our fair share. You right. Know? I mean, well, and when you look at when, just look at the income distribution, mm-hmm. so annual income. You know, and in my class, we spend a couple of days every semester talking about this. We list all the sources of variation in income. Part of it is just you might be born with some talents or some skills that make you capable of playing in the NBA and making $10 million a year that other people don't have. But it's also a combination of what you do with it, how you work and develop your abilities and your skills, how hard you work, your trade-off as far as working harder to get more income versus having more time off. People have different rates at which they're willing to make that trade-off. Part of it is luck and connections, right? Do you happen to be in the right place at the right time to find out about this opportunity that you wouldn't have known about otherwise? Mm -hmm. Part of it is the risk that people are willing to take. I mean, some occupations pay more because it involves a physical risk Mm -hmm. or because it's something that you're not physically able to do long term. And so you have to make enough money in a shorter number of years. Mm -hmm. And so if if the income variation is due to someone who was willing to take a risk or someone else wasn't or some, you know, and that risk could be like a physical risk with your occupation or it could be you took a risk by investing a lot of money in this company hoping that your new idea would take off. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it does and you become a billionaire. More often it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so if you have huge income because you worked hard and you took a risk, we tend to be much more willing to let you keep a huge percentage of mm-hmm. that income that you earn. But if you have huge incomes over things you didn't control, like the family you were born into or having to be in the right place at the right time, even though you have no particular skills, we're a little less inclined to let you keep. But how, how do we know, right? Mm-hmm. How much of a person's income is due to their hard work and their insight versus, you know, well, just inherited. knowing the right people. If you yeah, inherit it, that's easy. Yes. But yeah, yeah. Um, right. So... But that still doesn't, so, well, is it true that, you know, we always say, well, costs have gone up, but income has been stagnant. The wages have been stagnant. 
And so it has become harder to afford to pay for things, whether it's gas or a car to get around or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Relative so to that, average income, housing true? and transportation are definitely up. So are wages stagnant? I mean, in general. I'm, obviously, there's some fluctuation, but I mean, isn't that a problem if we're not getting paid more? Because again, I don't know how anyone can live on a minimum wage and have a family and still pay for the goods and services that we need. I mean, I'm not super familiar with a lot of the data, but mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's a pretty clear trend that wages, as far as like median earnings, have not grown as rapidly um, as productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like buying the median priced house takes a higher percentage of income and mm-hmm. buying a, the median car is a higher percentage of mm-hmm. income. But at the same time, the quality of a car you buy today is drastically different than the quality of a car you would buy 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's got lots of safety features and just comfort and kind of bells and whistles that right. didn't exist before. Right. So a lot of those data don't also control for changes in quality. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, there's no doubt that we have some cities, especially, where housing is going up so rapidly that people are priced out of the market, yeah. even when they have above average incomes. Yeah, yeah. And, and how should that be controlled? Um, Just rent control? Well, rent controls typically don't work. Okay. Um, they don't increase the number of units available. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you when you have a rent control is you say this is the maximum rent that can be charged. Mm-hmm. Well, the number of people willing and able to rent that housing at that price is greater than the number of units available. Mm-hmm. So the landlords quit maintaining them. And so costs like putting in new carpet or replacing the refrigerator or calling a plumber get shifted to the tenant rather than the landlord. Mm-hmm. And so, and you end up with more people who want them than can get them. And so rather than the market working, we have alternative mechanisms to decide who gets it. So it's who's willing to pay the biggest bribe to the landlord Mm -hmm. or who has the best connections to find someone who will sublet it to them when they get a job offer and move out of state. And so you end up with all these other ways to allocate rather than it just letting the market work. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons, though, that we've seen the demand for housing grow so much more than the supply is restrictive zoning. We don't let new development happen to build new housing, mm-hmm. or we only approve housing that is like a well above the median price because we only want the nice, fancy right. subdivision to go in next to us, not the high-density apartment buildings. Right. Right. And so it's a combination of, right? Yeah. In a lot of places, changing our zoning. But the problem is, if you increase the number of residential units, you know, significantly, well, that puts extra stress on your water system mm-hmm. and your sewer system. And that might require a big investment that we don't want to make. And so it's just easier to, to let housing prices go up and force the low-wage workers out of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah so complicated. It is. Yeah. I, I was really hoping you would just have some quick answers for me and I could just go on my way and not take antidepressants anymore, but oh, you haven't sorry. done Sorry. No magic wand here. <laughs> yes. Well, people hate lawyers, well, probably for lots of reasons, but our answer is always, well, it depends. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, economists, just, right? Yeah. What's the solution? Well, it depends. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you're right. Just, it's so fluid. The, the picture changes day to day often, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, um... Anything you want to, any final thoughts? I, I don't, I don't know. I could keep asking you questions, but I don't, 
I'm still struggling with how to think about the economy. Right. That big word, the economy, and what we should be doing or shouldn't. You know, I just don't know. I mean, it just feels like, and I know feeling is not the best way to address problems, but it feels like an unequal system. And it feels like, you know, I see them destroying the Little Rock School District and also destroying opportunities for a lot of kids, you know, and um, I feel like we're doing it wrong. Right. But I don't know exactly what we should be doing or what I want the outcome to look like. I believe in equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. Right. 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 So, but I feel like we're just setting so many people up, people in poverty. It's just, you know, there's more to it than the bootstraps. So um, I want you to kind of look at and follow some research being done out of Stanford. And I can't remember the name of the group off the top of my head. I'll email it to you later today. But basically, they had access to educational data and IRS data. And they're, they're looking at the income inequality problem and intergenerational movement within the income distribution. And they are finding that some communities, um, if you are born at like the 25th income percentile, you have a really high probability of moving up. And in other communities, basically the the part of the income distribution you're born into is where you're gonna be for life. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at what is it about these communities that makes a difference and causes some people to, to have opportunities to move up while other people appear to have no opportunities and be trapped into whatever situation they're born into. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a new area of, of research that we're, I mean, the goal is for everyone to get to determine where they end up based on what they do with where they started. Uh, but some places that happens better than others. Mm-hmm. And and so I'll, I'll send you a link to that yeah, research please. and you can watch kind of what they're doing and yeah. see what they're uncovering there. Yeah, and I'll link it uh, to it in our show notes too. Yeah, because I don't believe it's all just lazy people. The people who are not um, doing better or even surviving necessarily, they're, they're not all just lazy. One of the things they're kind of uncovering so far is um, that if your community is kind of integrated, so you don't have like the wealthy suburbs all on one side of town and then the low income area on the other side of town, but if they're kind of scattered throughout. And so if your low income children attend the same school as upper income children, and you interact with people of all different income levels, that tends to provide better opportunities for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the reasons schools can be really important. Uh, but if you have a neighborhood where you have, you know, the wealthy schools, or if your schools are just kind of mediocre and all the wealthy people put their kids in private schools instead, you end up in a situation where low-income kids only see low-income people in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. And that's where they tend to not see opportunities or not be in a position to take advantage of opportunities. Right. right. But of course, it's not necessarily causal. We haven't been able to do any grand experiments where right. we can identify a true cause and effect, but that's some of the patterns that we're beginning to see. Right. I uh, I have lived in lots of places, and um, I was a you know server and bartender in lots of places. And I would mm-hmm. always ask people what they did just because I was curious, because I wanted mm-hmm. to know what was out there. And right. I, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But oh. um, and, yes. and so to your point, right, if all you see is, say, poverty, you just are not exposed to other options. And so that's all you know. And mm-hmm. I, I think we don't think about that enough. I uh, When I did have the candy store and people would come in to apply, I mean, like I had one guy come in in his pajamas and ask for an application. And I said, are you wearing pajamas? <laughs> you know? yeah. And I would always take the time 
to teach them how to give a firm handshake, look people in the eye, be polite, right. dress decently. It could be jeans, but it should be nice, you know? Right. And they just had never had anyone tell them that. And so, and I had one girl come back, girl, I don't know if she was a teenager or young adult, but, and she just wanted to thank me because she got a job, you know, down the way. Right. And I just... That's all she needed was for someone she to tell her that. She just needed a simple you know? mentor. Yeah, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's that's important. I, I do think that we tend to generalize too much. I know I do. I don't on this subject, but I'm just saying, oh, all those poor people must be lazy. They're, right. all, they're all welfare queens. They're all whatever whatever we say about people. And two, we're, we're um, you know, we feel better when there are people who are doing worse than us. Right. You know, and that's just, I wish we could change that about human nature, but I don't know if that's possible. I don't know. You're probably familiar with the study where, I can't remember the exact details, but, you know, there are three kind of tiers of income, and the people in the middle had the option of giving their extra dollar, which they could not keep for themselves, to the people who had more money than them or the people who had less, and they always gave it to the people who had more because they didn't want the lower-income people to To catch up. Yes. Wow. I mean... I'm not familiar with that study. Yeah, I I can't find it. But I'm not horribly surprised either. Yeah, and is that just something that we have to live with? You have to ask a psychologist okay. about that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. But, so I will tell you this. My husband comes from a large family. Mm-hmm. He only has one sibling, but his mom grew up in a family of 12 mm-hmm. children, and his dad grew up in a family of 11. And wow. when there's a big family reunion, you see the entire income distribution in one room. And that, I've always wanted to, to write a book or do a case study on, on their family because... Children in the same household right. grew up to have children who had very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And was it just a difference in choices? Was it a change in the local economy at the right time? You know, I'm really curious. I mean, obviously we couldn't determine a true cause and effect, but just to be able to, to spend some time talking to them and figuring out what is it that caused, or maybe it was just a difference in preferences. Right? I would read that book. I have to write it first. <laughs> Finding That's time in my schedule to do that yeah. will be the trick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure personality drives a lot of that. You know, mm-hmm. like I am so different from my other siblings. I have five siblings and um, we kind of run the gamut. You know, I've mm-hmm. got a, a sister and brother-in-law who are servers and they've got six kids and, you know, they're always poor, but they're, they're the happiest family I know. Right. And, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm the only one with, you know, an advanced degree. And, but my personality is so different from theirs. Right. And so, but we come from educated parents and mm-hmm. you know you just you just never know it's it's all about I guess choices and why she's not any less valuable or she's not dumber she's mm-hmm. anyway anyway yeah that's fascinating yeah well like in my you know family my I have a brother and sister mm-hmm. and I would say we're all you know relatively the same my dad and his sisters my mom and her sisters you know I just kind of thought within families your socioeconomic status was relatively the same within the generation Mm -hmm. and then I look at my husband's family and they 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 basically defy everything I thought Mm -hmm. I knew Mm -hmm. please let me know if you start that project okay if they if they'll let you will they let you well that yeah talking to all (laughs) the family would be the challenge yes yes um if it were someone else's family, I wouldn't be so concerned for you, but <laughs> families are complicated. They are. Um, well, any uh, advice, words of wisdom, anything you want to kind of close out with? I mean, I feel like you have a sense of my concerns and, and my thoughts on all this, which is right. just basic confusion. But, you know, I, I want I want whatever the system is to work for as many people as possible. Right. And um, anyway. Well, I mean, 
we have to define what does it mean to work. Right. It's not just maximizing income. Right. Because lots of people make choices where their income goes down, but their quality of life goes up yeah. in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on to focus on opportunities more than outcomes. But even then, you know, we have to make tough choices mm-hmm. on, on what our priorities are and how to best allocate scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. The, Which is I've, a challenge. But you're thinking, I think you're you're tackling it from the right perspective, knowing that there are tough choices to make and kind of thinking about being wise and how we use all of our resources. And what would be, um, let's say we try... Um, I'm going to just use charter schools without getting into the charter school conversation. Sure. But they're supposed to be incubators, kind of experimental places, right? And how long do we give these things? 10 years? 20 years? I mean, like, what's a good... And I know the answer is depends on what we're talking about. But, like, if you try something, a minimum basic income, right? I mean, like, how long do we have to give something to really be able to determine whether it's working or not? It really depends on how your project is designed. Mm -hmm. If you set it up where you've got a treatment and a control group and you've got random assignment, it may be a relatively short time frame before you can see whatever it is that you want to measure. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's just like a charter school, we opened it, how long? We may never know exactly, right? But as long as people are voluntarily choosing to attend that school, that must say that it's better than the alternative on whatever it is that's important to the people who are opting in. Okay, so it just depends on what it is and if it's a controlled and Yeah, and how your project basically. is designed. If yeah. it's a controlled experiment, it may not take too terribly long. Right. Okay. But like with something like the, the minimum basic income, mm-hmm. doing that on a small scale and seeing what happens... You can get drastically different results when you scale it up and try to apply it to a larger mm-hmm. economy. Can you look at a place like Alaska where there everyone every resident gets some some money because of the oil? Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone gets some minimum monthly income, I think, from that. Is that right? Do you know it, much about it's, that? I don't know how much it is. Yeah. I don't know if that's still the case. I'm, they have the same thing in some Middle Eastern countries where yes. the government generates so much revenue with oil that they share with the citizens rather than collecting taxes. Right. Um, I wonder if, if anyone's looked at that as... Uh, well, I'll, I'll look that up. Look and see. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, Alaska is definitely still a market-based economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and those citizens are still paying federal taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Middle Eastern economies, they may be a lot less market-oriented. So trying to extrapolate their experience yeah. to ours would be problematic, yeah. to say the least. I think that's a very different. That, that is apples and oranges for sure. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, unless there's anything else you want to tell me or... No, okay. I, I can't think of anything. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is I have definitely learned a lot, and I, you know, it's just it's just demonstrated that there's just so much more to learn about it. So I'm both optimistic in the sense that I've, I'm glad that focusing op- on opportunity is is good advice or is the advice you're giving me. Mm-hmm. But I'm also still pessimistic about how we choose to deal with things because I think most people aren't doing the research and aren't trying to figure it out. But even the ones who are are going to differ on how we do things, right? Well, and so different projects, different proposals have different costs and mm-hmm. different benefits mm-hmm. for different individuals or entities within our system. And how we weigh the cost and the benefits to each entity would cause two people looking at the exact same data to reach different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Even if they had no kind of 
preconceived bias or preferences. So, you know, that's just just the reality of an economic system with lots of parties involved. Mm-hmm. And so, we'll never agree. There will always be room to talk about potential tweaks to the system. So, do you, is there an economy in the world you think is doing it right? I'm just going to say that. Understanding that whatever right means to everyone, but um, well, okay. I know I keep saying I'm going to let you go. Last question: Scandinavia. It seems to be the place everyone points to as a as a you know they're doing it great in Norway. Good education, social services, free healthcare, kind of all the things that we think we want. They pay a lot in taxes, but mm-hmm. I think they get paid a lot more. They're also very small countries relative to the U.S. They're very small. They have a lot less diversity as far as the resource base throughout the country, as far as the population. Um, Yeah, so, you know, what works for a smaller country with less diversity may not translate Mm -hmm. if you try to implement the same system in a larger economy. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say we can't take ideas from them for maybe better punishment systems, right? So someone I I met, he had lived in Sweden, I think, for a while. And he said, yeah, it was great, but everyone was just, no one was passionate about anything. You know, he was like, because everyone's lives were pretty easy. And one thing I love about America is our can-do spirit, Mm -hmm. you know? And I am competitive, and I am kind of entrepreneurial-focused, and so I love that about the U.S., and that we're always striving to do better, be better, be the best, and all of that. So I like that, and I I wouldn't want it to be like it is in Sweden, if what he says is true. Right. But again, I just want to make sure that we all have those opportunities. Well, and it could be, right, that the cause and effect is actually opposite. That they were able to implement a system where the government controls a much larger portion of the resources because nobody's all that passionate about anything, right? Mm. The government wants to take responsibility for this. Okay, let them. That's a good point. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go there and see. Okay. I'll, I'll go study. You check it out and let me know how it goes. Yes, yes. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And well, I hope we get to talk again sometime. Well, thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed it too. Good. Thank you. 